It's good to see everybody this morning. Everybody good? Two announcements I'm going to make. One is a sad announcement. One is a happy announcement. The sad announcement is this. Next week will be our last Saturday service. We've been doing a Saturday service for four years, and it is probably... Um, no offense to anybody in this room, but they're my favorite people. So the, I'd be, I'm just, oh, I heard one. Ah! Everybody else is like, dude, really? Are you saying, uh, yeah, deal with it. No. All right. No, it's just Saturday evening. We just, as a church, we just feel like we're in a season that, um, a season of pruning where we feel like we need to just kind of take a step back and take a look at what we're doing and, and uh, continue to minister to the best way we believe um, possible. And so what we're doing is we really have felt the need to consider a midweek service. And so what we're doing is a Wednesday night gathering at 7 o'clock that will be downstairs at tables. There's a reason for that. We just really feel like at 10 years into what we're doing, we'd like to revisit and kind of reestablish some of the principles on which and by which Mosaic was planted. Um, I would encourage you to be a part. I think it's going to be awesome. It'll involve, and, it's, and it'll be fluid. That's what's going to be so cool about it. There'll be some words, some prayers, some, some, um, um, some connecting, and it'll be one maybe more intense than another week, into, week in and week out, but we think it's going to be an excellent time of connecting and growing and growing more deeply. So Wednesday nights, that starts September 12th. And the last thing is, that I want to announce is this. Because of the pruning and where we think we are right now and, and, and our desire to minister the best of our ability, we're not going to offer Awana this fall. There will be childcare during the, the things that occur on Wednesday evening, and that will be a teaching time for the kids. Um, but Awana specifically will not be offered this fall. So I just wanted to make sure all that is true. Am I fading in and out again? So bear with us. We're having some technical difficulties with, um, with my mic this morning. Uh, I'm glad this is the last service because I get to have you guys as long as I want. I don't have anything backing up, you know, that I have to run into here. And the material that we're doing, that <laughs> I don't even recognize you. You look really old. It's good, yeah. <laughs> it's good to see you. you. Oh, how are you? Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. So the material we're working on, last week we, I started talking about rest. Now, I will tell you, that those, the people who have left the last two services, last night and this morning, um, have been really appreciative of this. Um, and I'm a little, I'm not surprised because I think the timing is what the timing is. I think we're in a world that is overwhelming and we're in a world that just is continually pushing and prodding and, and pulling us in, uh, to, be, to be busy, to be active. Um, but, and, and that's, and although that's true of the world, I don't know that it's not true of the church too. And so last week I came, you know, I came into the room and I said, listen, what I really want to do is just have some family time. We're brothers and sisters. And really, I, that's, I want to continue the kind of that, that feel today because what I want us to do is I want to look at this concept in a very real and a very honest and a very transparent way. And so if you were here last week, I will say this. I had to confess, we're talking about rest. What is it to rest? Where does rest come from? Why are we called to rest? Why is rest necessary? And I had to confess last week that, you know, I'm, I wish I could be preaching this one out of what I do. But I'm really preaching this one out of my own conviction of the fact that I don't. And as I look at the scriptures and I read and what, see what God calls us to, one of the things I'm, I'm learning to do I'm, um, is to rest. I'm learning to literally view 
each moment of my day through the lens of having been made in God's image and likeness, that he was a worker and made me to work, but he was also a rester and made me to rest. And the next thing is, is that I'm called to rest in his grace. I'm called to rest in his grace. And that's where we're going today. Last week we looked at having been created in his likeness and image. He set the, the rhythm and the temple of life by how he lived. Each day creating and making, reflecting back on the day, saying this is good, finding joy in that. There was evening and there was morning and he worked again. And there was evening and there was morning. And at the end of the week, he said, here's the deal. I'm looking back at everything I've done. This isn't just good. This is really good. I found joy and satisfaction in all that I've made. And today I'm going to set this day apart as holy and sacred. And I'm going to spend this time reflecting, finding joy. This is who I am. This is who I've made you to be. And when we begin to walk in the rhythm of God, in the manner in which we've been made, when our hearts and minds begin to pulsate with him, we find peace. We find equilibrium. But where is that found for us now here? Because everything I just said is from Genesis chapters 1 and 2. That was before the fall. That was before sin. That was before the curses. That was before selfishness and self-centeredness and self-righteousness. All those things occurred in Genesis chapter 3. And then the law came and he had to institute a Sabbath because he's saying, listen, you're not, you don't know me, you're not acquainted with me, and so I'm going to give you the law to push you back into the rhythm that I want for you. But it's even more profound than that. That Sabbath that he instituted through the law was a foreshadowing of the Christ to come. That the rest we were called to practice to spend time with him and to make this thing sacred and holy and set apart to worship and to rest in him was actually a foreshadowing of Jesus' coming and, the, and the, the rest that he would offer us eternally. And that eternity starts the moment we give our lives to Christ. That moment, that rest begins the minute we rest in him. That's where we are right now. Is that okay? All right, so I'm not sure how I'm gonna teach it this hour because there's a lot of info, there's just a lot of stuff. So grab your notes. You're going to need those for sure. You're going to need a Bible. If you did not, if you do not have a Bible with you, grab one from the pew back in front of you. And if there, there aren't enough there, grab one from the pew in front of the pew in front of you. And um, we are going to, but we're going to start with the notes. And so what I need you to do is grab your notes. And, <clears throat> and the, the first paragraph we're going to look at is the one that begins, too tired, too hurried, too anxious, too much. Now, again, if you're used to being here, you know that I will not get through all the notes, and that's on purpose. As this is for you to take home and to finish up at home, to take this through the week, get into the Word, and let it just, be, just percolate in you and, and, and uh, work on it through the week. Um, but we're going to start there. You ready? All right, so we're going to read right out of the chute. Look what it says. It says, what, so just follow along with me. What, what do we mean when we talk about rest? That, I think what I did was this week is I boiled it down to some questions we need to ask ourselves. So the first question I thought of was, well, what do we mean when we talk about rest? God says to rest. God himself rested. Then he calls us to rest, and he calls us to rest in him. Well, what does, that, what does it mean to do that? Well, Hebrews 4 says we are to enter into God's rest. And it's the idea of entering into his grace, receiving from him the rest from our works. Well, what are those works? When it's in Hebrews, when it says works, what they're talking about is works in an attempt to earn merit with God. 
Our works that are you know, designed to somehow gain salvation by our works, to gain approval from God, God by our works. And he's saying, no, 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 no. That's not what I want for you. What I want for you is to enter into this rest. And what that rest is, is the grace of God, the gift of life through Jesus Christ. Rest in that. This is what I offer you, rest. All right, so turn to Hebrews 4 if you would. It is the last large book in the New Testament before Revelation. So if you get to James or 1 Peter, you've gone too far. We're gonna be in Hebrews chapter four just for a moment. I don't wanna spend a lot of time here because essentially um, the entire message will, be, will extrapolate from here. I'm gonna pray before we read. Father, we thank you for your word. Um, it is alive, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and the joints and marrow. And it judges our thoughts and the attitudes of our heart. May that be true today. May we lay ourselves out, make ourselves vulnerable to your word, that it may work in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so here we go. So we're gonna start right here at verse one. It says, therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands. Now this is really important. So God creates this rest in Genesis chapter three. He says, I am the rest, I do rest, join me in my rest. And he institutes this rest. Now, unlike the first six days of creation, where there was morning and evening, you know what you don't see in chapter and verse uh, in the on the seventh day, a morning and an evening. In other words, God's rest or God's work began and ended. There was morning and evening, six days in a row. Day six, it says he reflected on all that he made, and for the first time, it wasn't just good, it was very good. In other words, I found joy every day in my work and the satisfaction of my work and what I've done and the reflection of me in what I've made. But day six, after man has been made, he looks at it and this is the pinnacle of his creation. It is now finished and complete because this, is, this isn't just good, this is, re- this is really good. And what we find in this, combined with Isaiah 58, Where Isaiah writes, listen, if you delight, God's saying through Isaiah, if you delight in my Sabbath, you will find joy. You will find joy. What did God derive from his rest? Explicitly, there's only one thing I can find. Joy. The text says only one thing in terms of God having rested. That as he reflected on all that he has made, he said, this is really good. He's setting the tempo and the tone for us. And he wants us to rest in him and with him and to reflect on him and who we are in him and everything that he does and everything that he provides and all that is God and to look back and stop and go, this isn't, this isn't just good. This is very good. And that gives us the strength to move forward. And so he's saying, now enter into my rest. So when we see this verse right here at the beginning of chapter four, and it says, therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, this actually refers back to the fact that J7 never had an evening. His rest is open from this point forward. His work was complete, but he says, my rest is eternal. Come rest with me. Come rest in me. So it's still open. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. Well, why would he say that? Well, because this passage is written by a Jew to Jews who were being tempted to go back to the law. And what he's saying is, listen, do you remember Israel? Do you remember the story of Israel? That they were enslaved in Egypt? And being enslaved in Egypt, that was a metaphor. It was a metaphor of our being enslaved by sin. It was real, but it was also speaking to us that Egypt is 
the personification of sin and the trapping of mankind in that sin. And so God comes in and he sends a man in to rescue Israel. And he says, we were gonna, we're gonna take you to the promised land. I have this vision for you. I have this promise for you of a place of rest for you an escape from the sin and this redemption into the promised land. So he brings Israel out and he takes them through the desert. And what, is the, what, is, what happens in the desert? The Israelites rebel, they disobey. They actually wanna go back into their slavery. What is the desert a picture of then? Our lives. It is our lives. That God came into, into Egypt and, and, and showed himself to Israel. And he said, here I am, I am God. And he demonstrated himself through power and he led them into the wilderness toward this place that would be a place of rest, which was, a, which was promised. But in the meantime, the Israelites lost sight of what it is that God had promised. They, did, they could not see beyond the desert to what it is God had for them. And in so they disobeyed and they rebelled and they wanted to go back. And God was so upset by that. He said, dude, listen, if that's how you're going to behave, you can't come into the promised land. So what does the promised land represent? Well, the rest. The rest of what? The rest in God's grace. Not as the permanent expression of it, but the shadow of what was to come in the kingdom of heaven. And for all those who would remain steadfast with God through the desert. So as God revealed himself to Egypt, he said, follow me, just like he reveals himself to us, whether it be by creation or by somebody's testimony or by the very word of God or the gospel itself. And we are drawn toward God out of our sinfulness into the desert where he wants to meet us and bring us into the promised land, bring us into his rest. The question is, will we obey? So for those of us who have obeyed, who have received what Christ Jesus offered in the midst, and now leaving Egypt and being steadfast through the desert, there is a promise waiting at the end. But it is not merely a land to be conquered. It is a land that is, that is being created for us. And we receive the promise, the promise of God's rest, and we receive it by, listen, by grace, by placing faith in God, by walking with him, and that's a metaphor for our lives. God called to me and drew me out and began to lead me according to his purposes. As I received what he had for me, what happened? I'm going through the desert. Until what? Until I receive that which is promised. It's planted deeply in me. It's permanent in regard to its rootedness. It's complete and utterly finished in regard to Christ's work in me and how I stand before God. But now he has me on this journey and he's promised me, now as, as you go, enter my rest. You have entered it through Christ Jesus. Now, let's see what the text says. So it says, therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, there's still the opportunity. Let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us, just like the Israelites did in the desert, that you could be saved by faith. Just as they did. But the message, now look, and here's the answer to that. But, here, but the message they heard was of no value to them. Now, it wasn't, doesn't mean that the truth had no value. What it meant was that it had no value to them. Why? Well, look what it says. Because those who heard it did not combine it with what? With faith, with trusting God. So it doesn't make truth, it doesn't mean that truth does not have value or the message does not have value. It means the one who had heard it did not value it and they did not place their faith in it. So, now we who, now look at verse three. Now we who have believed do what? 
enter the rest, we enter the rest. I'm going to stop there for a minute. So those who have believed now enter into the rest. Now, go back to the paragraph in the notes for me. So what does it say? In Hebrews 4, enter, it says, enter God's rest. Let us not misunderstand. The rest we are to enter into is the rest offered by God's saving grace given through the person and work of Jesus on the cross, the Father in his having raised Jesus from the dead, and in the Holy Spirit's indwelling, guaranteeing, keeping, and empowering. All of this is done at salvation. When we place our faith in Jesus, we are justified. We're going to talk about that in a second. We're innocent. We're complete, and it's finished. Mm. Oh, well, what does that mean? Well, let's read on for a minute. But much like everything else that has to do with the working out of sanctification in our lives. So we have two words that we need to define and make sure we understand them. One is a word called justification. The other one is a word called sanctification. Jake, come here a minute, man. Come here a minute. And let me see who else I got. Um, Will, come here for a second. These are three guys, right? Maddie, Maddie, Bobaddy, Mr. Jacobs, and what's your name? Will, Will the Bogans, our bass player. Everybody say hi to these guys. All right, now here's the deal. We're going to talk about justification, we're going to talk about sanctification. And it's a lot easier sometimes for us when we have a visual of these things instead of just hearing the words, right? So turn to Romans chapter 5 just for a second. I'm going to borrow your Bible for a minute. Can I do that? Because I left mine over there. All right. No, you, you're not even there yet. You just, uh, just keep that for yourself. All right, go to Romans chapter five for a minute because we're gonna look at these words. Romans is all the way back near the beginning of the New Testament. So if you go back to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or book of Acts, you've gone too far back. And we're in Romans chapter five, and we're gonna look at verse one. You ready? You ready? Yep. <laughs> Here we go. So it says this. It says, therefore, since we have been what? Well, let's go back for a moment. Look at verse 23. Oh, I'm going to have to read more than that, aren't I? Go to verse 18 of chapter 4. You ready? It says, against all hope, Abraham, who's an old guy, when God, who, who places his faith in God. When he's old, God comes and says, listen, I know you're old, but I'm going to give you a kid. And when I give you this kid, it's going to be a blessing to the whole world. Abraham goes, uh, you know I'm old, right? And God said, I know, but I can do it. And I'm gonna, your wife is old too, she can do it. I'm going to do it through you guys. It's all cool. So look what it says. Against all hope, this old guy, Abraham, in hope, in hope, believed what God had promised him and so became the father of many nations. So God goes to Abraham, says, you've lived your life in faith. I'm going to bless you with a seed. That seed will be a blessing to the nations. Against all hope now, being old, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, just as it had promised. You, so shall your offspring be. Because he didn't have any kids up to that point. He was childless. Without weakening his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. And that Sarah's womb was dead because she was old too. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully, what's that next word? Being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. Now, I want to make sure we understand something when we read this. 
because we're not reading the whole story. Abraham, it says that Abraham didn't waver in his faith. He understood, he believed in God and believed that it, what God would do, he, what he promised he would do. But we need to understand something because that makes Abraham sound perfect. Anybody in the room perfect? Anybody raise your hands if you're perfect. All right, well, okay, so Abraham wasn't either. We have a tendency to deify these old saints. The fact of the matter is, Abraham was as human as we are and struggled just like we do. And so he had this promise that God said, you know, even though you're old and your wife is old, I'm going to give you a child. Mm -hmm. Now in Romans, it says he didn't waver from that belief. He didn't waver from the understanding that God would do that thing. But you know what happened in the meantime? You know what happened? Sarah... I thought, you know what, I'm going to help God along and I'm going to give Abraham my concubine or my, my servant. And Abraham, you sleep with the servant and we'll get this job going. In other words, Abraham, though he didn't waver in his belief in, in God's ability to do this promise, didn't do it perfectly. You know why it's important for us to know that? Neither do we. We have a promise that God has for us. He will accomplish what he's promised. He will do that in us. But in the meantime, sometimes we think we've got to help God along. Now, what is the ramification of that? Well, through that union between Abraham and, and Sarah's servant was born Ishmael. It was said because Abraham sinned in this way that Ishmael would continue to live and become a great nation and that nation would be a thorn in the side of Israel from that point forward. So guess what happened? They became a thorn. That thorn still exists today. We don't have to discuss right now what and who that thorn might be. But it, it did, they have been, and they are. And so what we're learning in this is this, that sometimes even though we trust the promise, we have to be persuaded of the truth, and sometimes we'll try to add to the things that God has promised because we think maybe he's moving too slowly or he's not exactly sure how this should have happened, and maybe we'll help him out. Abraham, though he didn't waver in the trust that God would fulfill the promise, did struggle from moment to moment as to when or how that should happen, just like we do. So you know what Abraham wasn't doing? Listen to me. He wasn't resting in grace. He got antsy. He got anxious. He was sick of the waiting. He was struggling as to how this should happen. Sarah was going the same way. And so in their anxiousness, in their lack of rest, not resting in the grace that God had given them, the promise that he had given them, they tried to help. Anybody ever feel that way? That we have this promise out in front of us, this grace that we are to rest in, but in the meantime, maybe we'll help God along. Maybe he's moving too slowly for us. Maybe he's not doing exactly what we thought he should do. Maybe we're not getting exactly what we thought we should get. And so we tried to do it ourselves. And what happens sometimes? Those decisions become what? Thorns in our sides. Oh. Isn't it awesome that God's word is so alive, so active, and so relevant? Even this old man Abraham. So we go back to Hebrews, having that background, and what do we see? I know, I have three guys standing over here. I haven't forgotten yet. All right, you guys okay over here? You're good looking, so they get to look at you instead of me. Okay, so here we go. Where was I? Oh, were we at Hebrews? Oh, we're in Romans. Okay, so Romans 5 says this. Look what it says. So therefore, since we've been, okay, so where were we? What verse? Verse, oh, we're, we are to verse 1. Fantastic. Okay, so. 
No, we're not there yet. Okay, 21, verse four. Being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised, this is why it is called credited to him as righteousness. So Abraham was persuaded that God would do this. And because he had faith in God to do this, God credited it to him as righteousness. Now look at the verse 23. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us. Just like Abraham's life wasn't lived for him alone, but as an example to us, so is this written. Look what it says now. But also for us to whom God will do what? Credit righteousness for us who believe or have placed our faith in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead by faith. So he was delivered, Jesus was delivered over to death, and this is what we're putting our hope in. He was delivered over to death for our sins, dying, taking our sins upon himself, and was raised to life for our what? What is that next word? For our what? Our justification. Mm. Now look at verse five, chapter five, verse one. Therefore, since we have been what? Justified through faith, we now have, what is the next word? Peace with God. Well, what is peace with God? Is that not something to be rested in? Isn't peace this kind of sense of tranquility and soothing and rest? Isn't that what it is? So look what it says. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have, been, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now gained access by faith into this grace, through whom we now enter that rest, which is grace. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, I'm going to stop for a minute. What does all this mean? What I want us to see is this. What we're talking about is how to enter into God's rest. Well, if I have a relationship with God in Christ, if I have seen what Jesus has done for me, and that he would die for me and take, and take my sins upon himself, and now offer me the, the privilege of becoming a child of God by faith in him, and in doing so, I am now made his child, I have entered into grace and I rest from all my works. Well, what were my works? My attempt to make God happy. Hmm. Then what do we mean now by entering into his rest daily? What does that mean? Well, it's about sanctification. So first is justification. So you're gonna be Jesus. You stand over here for a minute. You're gonna be God because you have a beard, okay? And you're gonna be, you know, Jason, who's the sinner because it's obvious. Okay, so here we go. Here, sit there for a second. Now here, <laughs> all right, so here we go, right? That's it. So here's God. God is holy and he's mighty and he's glorious. And, and God is sinless, right? Jason is full of sin. Jason, now, when he stands before God, has the wrath of God on him because he is full of sin. His nature is sin. God is holy. Jason is sin. God cannot be close to sin. He wants to condemn sin because sin is death. It kills. God is light and life, right? So as we stand, he's in trouble. God's wrath, boom, on him. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Well, how did that happen? What, God, what Jesus did was he took our sin upon himself. He took Jason's sin upon himself and took it to the cross, taking the very wrath of God on behalf of Jason. Now, we've used this illustration a lot here. 
but not for this particular purpose in regard to justification. So let's take a peek at this. The fact of the matter is, is what, what enables us to rest in God's grace? We've been forgiven of our sin. I'm forgiven. That's crazy. But what's so awesome about that? I become a child of God in that. And now I rest in the fact that my sin is no longer counted against me and I can have a relationship with God and in so have eternal life with him. <laughs> right? Fantastic. But guess what happens if I don't rest? If I don't re-enter into that rest, re-enter into the rest, and we're going to make that comparison here in a moment. If I don't daily re-enter into that rest, keeping in view God's mercy, his God, God's grace, God's love, and God's work, I forget that I'm forgiven. I forget. And I start living like I ain't. And I start getting anxious like I forgot. I don't, uh, uh. Hmm. So, Let's go back to the condition, the condition that my condition is in. And if you're older than 55, that's an old song. I can't remember who did it, but it was really good. Okay, so here's the deal. Watch. Jesus became sin. In becoming sin, he took the wrath of God. Here's what's awesome. Stand right there. Matthew, perfect position. Go to, go to Romans chapter 5 with me again, starting at verse 1. This is therefore... Since we have been justified through... Oh, actually, go back up one. Okay, the word... Okay, verse 25. So for us who believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our what? Justification. Oh. So he took our sin upon himself and exchanged it for righteousness. So the righteousness with which Jesus lives and breathes was now imputed or injected into the one who believes. And this is complete and finished once for all. And this is the rest that we enter. The rest of this grace, this gift given to us by the work in the person of Jesus Christ finished, done. So what does it mean to be justified? That word specifically, because Paul uses it twice right here. To be justified, to be justified is more than forgiven of your sins. To be justified is to be rendered innocent. Not not guilty like the American, like the U.S. Uh, judicial system, but innocent. No, as if you've never sinned. So God now views you through the lens of Christ, not merely having been forgiven of your sins, but justified before him, made right with him as if you had never sinned, justified. And Romans 8 goes on to say, now there is no condemnation in Christ. None, zero, none to be had. It does not even exist because you are not, not just, you are not just not guilty. You are rendered innocent, and that innocence is complete and utter and finished. And that, my friends, is the rest that we enter into. That now I stand before God righteous, whole, complete, finished. Not by anything that I did or anything that I have to do or anything that I tried to do, but because of the person of Jesus and his work on the cross and how by faith he did the same thing he did for Abraham. He credited it to me. Isn't that amazing? 
This is the glory of our hope. This is it. This is the place of our rest and our peace. This is it. This is where we now breathe easy before a holy God, recognizing I'm truly and utterly a child of God, and there is no condemnation whatsoever. Is it making sense? Let that, let that sink in for a minute. Honestly, just Anybody go to the fair? This is what those rides sound like at the end. You get this? This is what Jesus came to offer. This is the rest he invites us to. The question is, are we? Will we? Do we? See, if you are here and you're still feeling the weight and the crushing nature of sin on you, perhaps, perhaps it's time to enter into the rest, that you would receive what Jesus is offering. Having received and taken your sin upon himself, he now offers you peace with God and life in God through the forgiveness of your sin and a promise of the resurrection of the dead and eternal life with him. And receive that for what it is. If those of us who are in this room who have already received it, here's the deal. He gives us the privilege of participating in a divine nature, his nature, by doing what? Daily entering into the rest. The rest that we already reside in, we're allowed to come back into, in and out, and in and out, and in and out, in a daily way. What does that look like? Ready? So having been justified, he is now right with God, period. Will, what do you see? Do you see Jesus or do you see Jason? All right. Will, what do you see? You don't see Jason. Even though Jason's not close to Jesus right now. Even though... (laughs) Even though Jason is not necessarily resting in his relationship with Jesus. Do you see him? All you see is who? That's right. Here's the truth. The fact of the matter is, is the daily entering into God's rest is the idea of the proximity, wow, the proximity with which we walk with Jesus. And the only way we get close to Jesus is to enter the rest, to remember, oh, this is what he's done, and this is who he is, and this is who he is to me, and this is what I get from it. Isn't this grand? You know why? Because I forget. And when I forget, I stop living like it's true because I stop thinking like it's true and I start feeling like it's not true. Oh. And all of a sudden, our feelings become more important than what is true. Right? God is saying, no. Here's the truth. You are mine and there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. None. Come enter the rest. it. All right, so where do we go from here? I'm glad we have till three o'clock. This is good. Okay. Oh, you laugh. So here we go. Go back to the paragraphs with me if you would. So it says, so we, we, we look at that first sentence of the second paragraph. It says, but much like everything else that has to do with the working out of our sanctification in our lives. Now, what I mean by that is this. The truth of my being justified is true, it's complete, and it's finished. And the sanctification means that I'm progressing toward Christ's likeness. Daily, I'm becoming more like Jesus. 
So where I'm justified and that's complete, and my position with God is assured. How I walk with God is the process of sanctification. As I walk closer and closer with him, I conform more and more into his likeness. I reflect him more and more. And that's a daily. Now watch, keep going with the paragraph with me if you would. So much like everything else that has to do with the working out of sanctification in our lives, the process of becoming more like Jesus, though we already rest eternally in God's grace by faith in Christ Jesus, that's what we were just looking at, we are, now, we are to now join God in his work of enacting that truth, living it out. That rest in our day-to-day lives as we grow in trust in him, experiencing that peace and that rest now. Well, through the joy of our salvation, our position as God's children by that grace, and our lives becoming a consistent expression of God's grace to the dying world. As our lives become, look at, as our lives become a vivid picture of and an invitation to that peace and rest. So we gotta stop here for a minute. We have to ask ourselves a question. If I am a child of God and I've been justified by the work of Christ Jesus, I've placed my faith there and entered into the rest of his grace, that rest of his grace, and now I have peace with God. Does my life reflect it? Does that life, does that peace, does that rest show in my life? Because what better testimony to the world that our God is real than the fact that we in this context would be at rest. That no matter what is happening around me, God works all things out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I am more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. That he has promised to finish the work that he has begun in me that those statements are true. That I trust when Jesus said, no no one will be snatched from my hand. Do I trust in that truth? Will I? And will my life reflect that truth? Because that's the truth. How do I live that out every day? How do I employ this daily? When so often, listen, I what? I forget. Don't I forget? Do you forget? Sometimes I forget I'm a child of God. Sometimes I forget I'm forgiven of my sins. Sometimes I wonder if I have to do a little bit more to make God love me more or maybe have done a little bit less that he would not love me less. Anybody? When in fact, none of that is true. He loves me perfectly and completely and utterly. I can't do anything to make him love me more. I can't do anything to make him love me less. I can't do anything to make him say, oh, I made a mistake. You are not my child. I should have never adopted you to begin with. (laughs) That is not my God. That's not, not the heart of my God. It's not the truth of my God. But do I live that way? So, you ready? Where are we going from here? Let's take a peek. So, next question we have to ask ourselves. Why in the world is it so hard to rest? Maybe I'm assuming something. Let me ask you this. Do you find difficulty to resting? Is it hard to rest? Yes? No? Maybe. Maybe it's just me. Anybody here have struggle wrestling? wrestling? Well, we'll get that in another minute. Anyone have struggle resting? Like it's just hard to rest? Now look at at, at what it says. There's a reason for this. Man, I wish we had all day. Golly. Or I should say, man, I'm glad we have all day. Okay, so here we go. Look at what it says. Why is it so hard to rest? Why do I fight it so? 
If my faith is by grace, it's a gift, and there's the, my place of rest, why is it such work? We are fooled, this is my opinion. Okay, you ready? We are fooled by how we view or define rest. Rest, listen, is not, quote, doing nothing, unquote. It's not doing, rest isn't doing nothing. You ever have one of those days where you decide, you know, I got today off and I got nothing scheduled. So, you know, I'm not even gonna take my pajamas off today. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna put, keep my grubby t-shirt on, pull my flannels up and I'm gonna just chill. I'm gonna eat a little extra cereal in the morning. If I, I'm gonna eat in the living room, I'm not even gonna walk my bowl to the sink. I'm gonna just watch a couple of movies. I'm gonna, mm. anybody, you know, we look at the, we think going into that day, that's awesome, I can't wait, I'm gonna rest. But if you've done that, how often do you get halfway through that day and all of a sudden your body's just kind of achy and you're kind of bored and you're getting a little cranky and you're like, what have I accomplished today? And ah, and you just, you just kind of turn into a malaise and you're just doing this. Anybody? Yep. Isn't that how it goes? Well, you know why? We're not designed to do nothing. <laughs> and rest, by definition, is not doing nothing. Rest is as much doing nothing as being still meaning the false definition of not moving. Being still doesn't mean don't move. Being still means to enter into a tranquil state of peace, regardless of the movement. And rest doesn't mean do nothing. Rest means reflect. Ruminate. Rejoice and be rejuvenated. Rest is the active pursuit of everything God. It's entering his rest. It's remembering his mercy, remembering his grace, remembering his gifts, remembering his provisions, remembering his presence, remembering his power, remembering his works and his faithfulness, his goodness and his glory. That's rest. That is where we find our joy. And that is where we find our significance. And that is where, listen, we find our identity is in rest. As we reflect on the works that he has done in us and with us and through us and for us. And we rejoice in all things God. Does this make sense? There's so many places to see this. Go to Romans chapter one, if you would. And it's an incredibly familiar text, but one we rarely look at in this context. Paul has just written 11 chapters to remind us of who we were in our sin, what, where, that none of us could be righteous, that none of us did good, none of us seeks God, and then despite the fact that we're enemies of God, he sends his son to die on our behalf, and he does it while we're still enemies, and he wins us to himself, and there's a battle that rages inside, and that battle is between our flesh and where it wants to go, and the spirit where it wants to go, and there's this constant conflict, and we're confused, but then he says, oh man, who's going to save me from this body of death? And he goes, oh, Jesus, yeah, and Jesus saves me from that, and then in chapter he says, now what's really awesome about that is you have complete and utter victory in this. Boom. Wink. And you're like, wow, God did this. And so in chapter 12, after doing all that for us, this is what he says. He says, therefore, now I urge you, brothers, in what? What's it say? 
in view of his mercy, in view of God and his caring, in view of God and how he loved in view of God, you deserve to be punished. And he didn't do it and said, well, you were still his enemy deserving his punishment. He said, what? I love you. Come to me. In view of his mercy, now offer your body as an instrument of his work. You know what he's actually saying when he says in view of his mercy? Enter into his rest. In view of what he's done for you, now rest in it. And in resting in the fact that you are now a child of God and he has done all these things and he promises to fulfill all these works, now offer your body. Because listen, if God is for you, who can be against you? Stop worrying. You are his completely, utterly, forever. Enter into the rest. Enter. Hmm. So, he says, now offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing. Isn't that fantastic? But the question still remains, why is this so hard? Why is it such work? Why is it so difficult? Well, go to Galatians 5 for me for a minute. Go to Galatians 5. So move over about, I don't know, four books-ish. Chapter 5, verse 13. You ready? It says, you, my brothers, were called to be what? Free. Free from what? Egypt. Free from sin and its consequences. You're free. You've been called to be free. You have been given freedom in Christ Jesus. No longer, no longer under the wrath of God. No longer in line for punishment. No longer condemned. But now free. You, brothers, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Go down to verse 16. So if you live by the Spirit, if you enter into the rest of God, if you, re, if, you, if you hold on to that freedom, walking by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now look, here's the battle, ready? For the, for the flesh desires what is what? What's that next word? Contrary to the Spirit. And what the Spirit wants is what? What's the next word? Contrary to the flesh. They are in what? What's the next word? In conflict with each other. That's the battle line. You know why it's so hard to rest? Right there. Because everything that God has done for us is for our soul. It's, for, it's, the, it's the indwelling of the Spirit to enliven our soul and to connect us to the Father. But you know what our flesh is all about? What it's all about. And it's not about what God's about. And so when God and his Spirit... Now read the, read the paragraph in the notes with me real quick. Rest is being in view of God's mercy and resting in being soothed by his grace. It is difficult to rest. It is work to rest. The reason we do not want to rest is because of how hard it really is to do and to be at rest. Anything God wants for us, that is that his word commands and the spirit encourages, listen, the flesh will fight. It will fight it. Even or especially when we know in the deepest part of us, that is what we need. Our flesh will fight our spirit at every turn in an attempt to be entertained and indulged and satisfied. But the flesh will never be satisfied. It only gets hungrier and hungrier, and it'll exhaust us. That battle is real. That fight to enter God's rest is a real fight. So where do we go to find rest? What do we do to find rest? Do me a favor, turn to Psalm chapter 46. Psalm chapter 46, and I'll try to be brief. Here in this beautiful psalm is the essence in one fell swoop 
the essence of what it is to enter God's rest. You ready? And what keeps us from it? You ready? Psalm 46, we're going to start at verse 1. It says, God is our what? God is our what? Oh, our refuge. That's not a word we use very much. What is refuge? In fact, we confuse it with refuse, which obviously would not be God. That would be garbage. So what is refuge? What is it? It's a hiding place. It's a place of safety. It's a place we go when we're in trouble. It's our refuge. It's where we go to hide, to be safe. God is our refuge. Look what it goes on to say. God is our refuge and our strength. An ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we who know him, who have entered into his rest, will not fear. Though the earth give way, and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, and the mountains quake with, with their surging. You get that picture? You got it? Read it again. We will not fear. Though the earth give way, the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, and the mountains quake and they're surging. Stop for a minute. You know what's really hard about this psalm? Most of us have never seen that. We've not seen mountains just fall into the water. Very seldom have we been near the ocean long enough at the right time to, to have this tranquil thing that causes me to be soothed and relaxed when I'm on the beach to all of a sudden just being in an uproar and foaming and destroying everything in its path. You know why it's important for us to recognize what he's talking about here? Because what he's talking about here is our hearts. He's talking about our minds and he's talking about our lives. What he's saying is God is our refuge and he's, he's our strength and he's ever present and all powerful. And so when my world begins to collapse upon me, when all of a sudden everything I know is just in, 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 in tumult and, and everything, everything about me is, 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 is subject to destruction and peril, Ever wake up at two in the morning and something just hits you and you, you just, either the guilt or the shame or the fear or the anxiety just overwhelms you and your skin is hot and, and your heart begins to beat and you begin to turn in bed and you wish you could just, yeah, anybody? That is what the psalmist is talking about. He's saying our God is real and is our refuge and he's our strength and he's ever present. He's our ever present help. And so when the world around us is crumbling, and even to the point where the mountains are just falling into the sea and the sea is foaming up and everything is going to overwhelm me and I'm drowning in the midst of it. He's speaking about life and fears and anxiety and sin and its consequences and all the things that... And if we stop there, if we stop there, we we're paralyzed. If we stop there, our lives become ineffective. If we stop there, we, we, our hope begins to wane. If we stop there, we lose our vision. If we stop there, we've been, we have forgotten that this is our God and we are his child. We've been forget, we've forgotten. So the psalmist in his, you know, with God writing through him does this awesome thing. Look what happens next. Woo. God is our refuge and our strength, our ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, 
though trouble comes, the earth giving way, the mountains falling into the, into the heart of the sea and the waters roaring and foaming and the mountains quaking and surging. Verse four, yet there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The holy place where the most high dwells. What is the river? It's his grace. The river is the mercy and the grace of God as it flows through. Through what? The city. Who's the city? Us. We are that city. His grace is that river. And when the world is crashing down on us and we are willing to see him as our refuge and our strength, as our ever-present hope, and when we recognize who he is and who we are in regard to his grace, having rested eternally in what it is he offers through Christ, guess what happens? Even though the world is collapsing around us and everything's in all of it and we're in fear of drowning, he says there's a river that runs through you. It makes you glad. It is the truth of his mercy and grace bestowed upon man through Christ Jesus as they have placed their faith and trust in him. And then what? The Holy Spirit that empowers you to live it out. That does this thing in you and through you. You know how I know that? What does it say next? This city is the dwelling place of the most high God. Guess what you are? What does what does 1 Corinthians 3 say? Don't you know that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit? Don't you know? First Peter chapter two, don't you know you're being built into a holy temple in which the most high dwells? What is David saying here? What is God saying to us through David? Enter into my rest. I am your refuge. I am your strength. I am your ever-present hope. When the world crashes around you and your conscience is trying to condemn you and your mind begins to flutter and your, way, and your faith begins to waver, I am there. And there's a river of grace and power that flow through you in such a way as to remind you who I am and who you are to me and what I am doing and the promises I will fulfill and I will make you glad because I dwell there. That's truth. And that's rest. And this is what it is to enter into it. That's what he gives us. We have it eternally in Christ Jesus, but daily we must enter it to be reminded. Band get in place. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. We'll close it here. This is the joy of being a child of God. This is the wonder of being the expression of his grace. This is the incredible opportunity we have to be the testimony of his, of, of his peace and power. This is when our lives all of a sudden are lived in such a way and reflect him in such a way that people cannot help but ask for the reason, for the hope that we have. But we lose it if we don't rest. But that rest is work. Second Peter chapter one, starting at verse one. You ready? Second Peter one, verse one. Again, familiar text, but not seen. We don't look at it very often in this context. First thing Peter does is he reminds us of who God is and who we are to him. Look what he says. He reminds us of our rest, our eternal rest. To those through who the righteousness of our God and Savior Christ Jesus have received a faith as precious as ours, this gift of grace given to you that now in which you rest, grace and peace be yours in abundance. The recognition of this grace, the reality of this grace, 
the daily living out of this grace and the eternal welfare of this grace and the peace that comes from it because we have now peace with God. May that be yours in abundance through this relationship you have with God through Christ Jesus. That's what that word knowledge means, this experiential relationship with him. Verse three, see God's divine power has given us everything we need for this incredible life of peace and grace and godliness growing into his likeness through our walking with him. He who called us by his own character, his glory and his goodness. Through his glory and goodness, he has given us great and precious promises, including eternal life and rest in him, forgiveness of our sins and the power of the Holy Spirit. Look what it says. Through this glory and grace, He's given us very great and precious promises so that through the promise you may participate in the divine nature. You now look and act like God, being made in his image and likeness, now filled with his spirit. We can be imitators of God as dearly loved children and participate with him. Look what it goes on to say. We can participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption of the world caused by our own flesh, our own evil desires. For this reason now, do what? What's it say? What's it say? Work. For this reason, now you work. You've been given all this by grace through, grace through faith. Now you ent- work to enter into the rest. Because you know what he's teaching us to do right here? How to daily enter into the rest of God. Being reminded of our faith. Being reminded of our grace, God's grace. Being reminded of the mercy showered on us. Reminded of the power that is in us. Reminded that we now have permission as God's children to participate in his nature. Reminded of all those things. He says, because all of this is true, now you make every effort to enter that rest. And add to that faith, the, the service. And add to that beautiful, virtuous service, goodness. Add to that the word of God. Add to that word of God the ability to pray and be self-controlled, resting in him, wrestling yourself to stillness. Add to that perseverance, your ability to cheerfully endure your circumstances. Add to that cheerful endurance, the, the uh, godliness and, bro- and godly character. Add to that godly character a love for the brotherhood. And as you learn to love the brotherhood, bring love to the world. That's what he's saying. Now he goes on and look what he goes, look, finish this thing. Look, oh. So, verse eight, for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your experiential relationship, this intimate relationship you have with Christ. In other words, it'll keep you from, if you don't have these in increasing measure, listen, it'll keep you from entering his rest. Daily rest, not eternal rest, your daily rest. How do I know that? Look what it says. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they'll keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your relationship with Jesus and entering his rest. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has done what? What's he done? He's forgotten who he is, who she is forgotten that they've been forgiven of their sins, forgotten that they've been made children of God, forgotten that they are justified, made right, declared innocent before a holy God. We have forgotten 
How are we reminded of what it is we are in Christ? Why do we need to be reminded? Because it's so hard to rest, so hard that God has to remind us perpetually. Look what it goes on to say. This is really important. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and forgotten that he's been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. Not sure with God, but sure to you that you would walk in confidence and assurance of what it is that God has done, never forgetting the grace that, in which you rest. Look what it goes on to say. And you will receive a rich welcome when you, when, when you come into the eternal kingdom of our Lord. Verse 12, what's Peter saying? So I will do what? I will always what? I will always remind you of these things. Even though what? Even though I know you know it and are firmly, firmly established in the truth. I will continue to run, as long as I'm in this tent, as long as I'm in this body, as long as God has me here to minister to and with you, I'm going to remind you of this truth, even though I know you know it, and even though I know you're firmly established in this truth, I will remind you, why? Because we will forget. This world will overwhelm us. We will forget that he's a refuge, that he's ever present, that he's our help. We will forget that we are his children. We will forget, we forget. We'll forget. And Peter is saying, I will not let you forget. As long as I'm in this tent, I will remind you. I will remind you to enter daily into fight to get into his rest. Fight off the flesh. By what? By resting. Resting in the truth. Resting in who he is. Resting in whose you are. Resting in what he's made you to be. Resting in the fact that there is nothing that can snatch you from his hands nothing. Resting from the fact that his deepest desire is that you would walk with him and be an instrument of his will and purposes, his grace, his mercy, and his love. That we would example the power of our God by being men and women of rest and peace as we go about the work of believing and the kingdom. Amen? Let's stand and sing. Lord, may we this week enter into your rest. For those of us who don't know you, Lord God, may we enter into the ultimate rest, which is life in you, by your grace. Jesus, you loved us so much that you came and walked among us. You loved us, you died for us, and you called to us, and you forgive us, and then you give us your excellency. Father, for those of us who, um, who do know you, I pray that daily we would enter into that rest that we would be reminded. We would just sit at the end of the day and reflect on who you are and who we are to you and all that you've done and all that you do and all that you will do. May that, may that really be what we do. And remind us it's hard for everybody to do that. It's hard for everybody to take even a few minutes. So Lord God, you've given us your spirit. Knowing how hard that is, you've, given, you've not left us alone with that. You've given us your spirit to guide and to remind, to instruct, to empower, and to protect. So Lord, may we walk with that spirit, entering your rest, being reminded of you, the forgiveness of sins, and then live daily in the joy of being your child. And may that be our testimony, our story of you in a lost and dying world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Remember, the notes are for you to take home and go through. We'll see you next week. Have a great week.